somebody on the other side of you and say, the rest is for me. <laughs> Amen. It's really great to be here. It's great to see Matt uh, from Houston. And uh, congratulations. My wife had to show me a video of something out in the park when you did, when you asked your wife to marry you. I thought that was pretty cool. What do you call that? A flash whatever? Flash mop? Yeah, that was pretty cool. Tell how old I am, right? I'll be 40 for the 20th time soon, so. Uh, I really liked it. Uh, yesterday, Abram and Josh said, no, you don't look more than like 20-something or 30-something. Well, I like you guys, so. <laughs> you know, I was thinking this morning, and, and just the blessing that this church is birthed out of prayer. And it's birthed out of a desire for God's presence. See, it's one thing to pray. We can pray shallow platitudes, uh, religious incantations, but God doesn't hear those kinds of prayers. God hears the heart cry. You could say Mary had little lamb with the heart cry, and God loves that. <laughs> and, uh, and you can stutter, you can stumble. God loves that when, it com- when you come with the authenticity of the genuineness of your heart to come before the creator of the heavens and the earth by which we can come boldly into the presence of God himself because of the blood of Jesus. And that's an amazing thing that because of our sin, we've been so separated from our creator, from God, that God so loved us, he gave his son. And through the son of his love, it says in Colossians chapter one, because of the son of his love, we now have equal access to the presence of the creator of the heavens and the earth. I mean, that's pretty amazing. When you think about even Solomon and and he was the wealthiest, wisest man in the world at the time. And it says uh, when he built that, the tabernacle for God, and that uh, people from all over the known nations, even heads of state came. They were so moved by this great, beautiful, magnificent thing that he had built. But Solomon, in all of his wisdom, uh, and I'm not sure how wise he was because he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And he could only serve one master, guys. So anyway. Uh, but the, 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 the fact is that he realized that in all the beauty and the magnificence and the beauty of the cedars of Lebanon and all that he had built with the best uh, gems and, and silver and bronze and, and gold that he built this magnificent place for God, he realized that, you know, even people were impressed that, not, that God not, isn't necessarily impressed. And so what he did was he actually humbled himself before God and he says, God, who do I think I am to think that the God that the heavens of the heavens cannot contain. In other words, God can't be contained. All of creation can't be contained because God himself is the creator of everything. So who do I think I am to think that the God, that the heavens of the heavens, who cannot be contained, that the heavens of the heavens cannot contain God, would even think about dwelling in this place that we have built. In other words, he put perspective that everybody else was impressed, but he knew that that doesn't impress God. But he did impress God when he went to his knees and he said, Lord, I dedicate this place to you. We built it for you, but it can't be just for you. It has to be more than that. It has to be with you and about you. Isn't that true when the woman at the issue of blood, if you know that story that when thousands of people were were throwing and and coming around Jesus and and, and they're all there because of Jesus. They want to get close to him. They want to hear him speak. He, he is a great communicator. He tells great stories. And people heard all the legends and the stories of all the things that follow him in his wake. And so they're, they're coming before him. They're trying to get to him. And finally he says, who touched me? And his disciples said, Jesus, what's up, man? Everybody's here to see you and hear you and touch you. What do you, talk? What do you mean who touched you? But he knew the difference. 
He knows the difference between those who come to hear a message, to those who come to be entertained, to those who come because they like the fellowship, which are all good benefits of getting around the things of God. But he knew the difference between the one who touched him and drew virtue from him and released power. And the word, when we talk about the hems of the garments in Scripture, the word is, is tzitzi, which means the dangling tassels. She knew, she didn't think, if I could just go talk to him, if I could just, if I could just somehow get right in front of him. No, she knew if I could just get to the lowest of the lowest of the dangling place of his garments, if I could just touch that, I know something will happen. She wasn't there to just hear Jesus. She wasn't there to be a part of fellowship. She wasn't there to be a part of, of good being entertained in a good sermon. She was there because she was coming with expectation for God to do something that she didn't know how he could do, but she knew only he could do. And there's something about us that we miss moments. In Luke chapter uh, 24, and I love this because it's the road to Emmaus, and it's right after all the disciples had been, you know, they've been dumped out of They're going, wait a minute, this isn't what we thought. We thought that this is how Jesus was coming, and this is what he was going to do. He's going to be a conquering king. And all of a sudden, he's been brutalized, and, and he's been scorned. He's been humiliated. He was crucified, and then he's dead. But then he started hearing rumors from some of the women of their company who said, something's happened. His body's gone. He's not in the tomb. And then... They began to tell stories about an angel appeared to them, a manifestation of the supernatural. And so they're walking on this road to Emmaus. They're talking about Jesus. They're discussing Jesus. They're going on and on about what all that just transpired. So they're all thinking about talking about Jesus, but when he appears, they don't even recognize him. And how many times do we miss the moment of God's presence because we put our expectations above the expectations of God? And we expect God to do something the way he's done it before. We expect God to do it our way instead of trusting God to do it his way. And so they begin to talk, and he appears to them, and they're, they're conversing. And then finally he says, well, what's going on with you? Why are you so sad? Why are you so gloom? And I can just imagine our current vernacular, dude, what's up with you? Where have you been? The last, have you heard the news? Have you been watching the television? Have you been listening to the radio? What's just happened? And they began to tell them about Jesus. And here's Jesus listening to them talk about him and still don't recognize he's in their midst until when they begin. Oh, and this is a key, key phrase. He says, why are you feeling this way? And they said and began to tell the story. And they said, we were hoping that. That speaks their own expectation. Here's what's transpired, but we had our own ideas of what he was supposed to do, and we were hoping that he would do it our way, this way, that way. And so when they be he begins to depart, they're going to go in, and he acts like he's going to leave them, and, and they said, wait, 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 wait. Would you abide with us? That's an invitation. And oftentimes when we don't know what to do, when our hearts are overwhelmed, when our minds are overwhelmed, when there's so much uh, noise pollution, there's so many uh, external pressures and distractions, we've got to just get quiet our spirit and say, Jesus, I invite your presence. All the counseling and all the things that people tell me and all the people's opinions, God, I need to hear your voice. So that moment of invitation, something happened. Because as soon as invitation happened, and they said, abide with us, they began to fellowship and commune and have dinner together. 
And that moment of communion, their eyes were opened. That's revelation. Invitation with communion brings revelation. And what we need today in the midst of a world that's messed up, a world that stinks, a world that is really going through a lot of stuff, a nation divided, uh, conflict around the world, we need a revelation, a renewed revelation of the work of the cross, the power of the resurrection, the Prince of Peace on the throne of his church and the hearts of his people. Because our only hope is not in the hope in the institutions of men, in a political party, in a man or woman, our personal opinions. Our only hope is in the hope of glory, Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we need. When we put him back on the throne of our hearts, watch what God can do. And so revelation, and that moment of revelation, then he departs, and they said, were our hearts not burning within us? When you get around something that is authentic, something inside of you stirs. You may not be able to know how to, to explain it, but something is stirring in you. I remember being in Indonesia right after the Asian economic collapse in 1998, and I was asked to do a meetings there, and there's about 30,000 people gathered in a, in, a, in a big stadium. And when I got up to speak on the first night, I said, before I can speak to you, I want to share something about the revelation of Jesus. Some of you here, many of you, it's a Muslim country, many of you are Muslims, some of you are, are atheists or Hindus or backslidden Christians or whatever your backgrounds are. I said, right now, before I can speak to you, I need you to get a revelation of who really Jesus is, even if you don't comprehend him here. But I want you to know in here that if I'm telling you the truth and you're stirred by it, you need to respond before I even speak to you or minister to you because I want you to get the full benefit of what God's Holy Spirit wants to do for you. And the pastors were going, no, no, that doesn't work here. You can't do that. We don't respond like that. No, it's not going to work. But I felt compelled that before I can give a message and then do a salvation healing, you know, salvation call or, uh, you know, be blessed call, whatever, I felt like I had to let first make sure they prayed an honest, authentic prayer. And one of the prayers I have people pray from Iran to Vietnam to Colombia to, uh, to Brazil, wherever I go, here's what I have them pray. Even if you do not believe, even if you don't agree with me, are you a lover of truth? I was debating on live television a professor from Tehran University. Now, he calls it a debate. I don't debate. I just converse. I tell him what I know is right. And you can, you can call that a debate. I don't want to debate because I'm not going to fight the intellect of a, of a great, brilliant mind. I'm just going to tell him what's changed my life. And so I said, are you, you're a philosophy teacher at Tehran University. Do you love the truth? Well, absolutely. So if the truth were revealed to you, you would accept it, even if it went against your filtering system and against your upbringing experiences and your mind and intellect. Absolutely, I love the truth. I said, so if you really love the truth, would you do something with me? Would you just pray this simple prayer? Jesus, if you are who you say you are. You go, oh, I, I don't believe. I go, wait, wait, wait. You just told me if the truth could be revealed. I'm not saying you have to believe in your mind. I'm just saying that, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, reveal yourself to me. And I so believe that Jesus loves you so much that if you pray that with an authentic desire for truth, the truth will be revealed to you. And so we were in Indonesia, and I, I basically said that, and I said, right now, and I laid off the five sins in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the five sins that kept Israel out of the promised land for 40 years, and the same five sins that keep people out of their victories, even as Christians, because they won't accept the love of truth in those areas of their life. And I share that. So, so right now, you may not understand it here, 
but something's stirring in here. That's the Holy Spirit working on you. And if that's you right now, I want you to run down to the altar and say, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, reveal yourself to me right now. And to my amazement, 2,500 or so people ran to the altar. And the pastors were amazed in Indonesia. I was amazed going, oh, God, I'm glad you did something here. (laughs) And then I thought I made a mistake, and I told my interpreter. I said, look, I'm not asking Christians to come get blessed. Here's what I'm truly trying to say. So he repeats what I'm saying. Instead of them leaving, more people came. They knew there was a price to pay to make that commitment. And the reality is that God wants us to come to that place of a revelation of the work of the cross, of power, his resurrection, his love. And it's not about just thinking about, hoping that, or coming around but for fellowship. That's all the byproduct. That's the benefits of his presence. But there's nothing that substitutes his presence. Our worship that we do is as, as awesome as it is. And I tell you, uh, Daryl is always blessed, my wife and I, in your worship. There's such an authenticity in the, and the way that you help guide us in, in the place of his presence because it's not entertainment. Although it's energy and it's full, there's something about redirecting us right into the face of God. And that's what's going to be, be the difference in our generation. We need to see God face to face. And we need him to intervene on our behalf and do a work in and through us when he's back on the hearts or the throne of our hearts. And so it's not about just the fellowship. It's not about the entertainment. It's not about the music. In fact, the first time the word worship is ever used in Scripture is not the context of instruments or singing. It's in the, in the context of obedience to God. So the highest form of worship is, is, is simple obedience to God. I remember there was a, a very well-known global business mogul now, but when he first got saved, uh, we were, I was speaking, I was coming out of Vietnam working with underground churches and helping to, um, to do medical clinics and work in polio orphanage, and I went through Malaysia, and this was 1991 on this trip, and uh, I was called by full gospel businessmen to come speak at a luncheon. So I said, sure, I went and spoke, simple lunch, I just gave my testimony, talked a bit about my own life, and, and, uh, and all of a sudden, um, this man comes up to me, and he was very dignified, had, a, had a, like a protocol officers around him or people like an entourage, and thinking, well, this guy must have some sort of position. He's a political guy or something. And finally he says, look, I, here's my, I've been given the highest title that a person could be given in my country, and the title is called Tan Sri. It can only be given by the king or by, uh, uh, or by the president or Prime Minister of Malaysia. And he says, so I've been given this high towel because of the success of our company. We're one of the top 50 conglomerates in all of Asia, and that was back then. Now they're even higher than that uh, as far as known around the world. And he's known all of our different presidents up to then. He knows every president since then, uh, goes in and out of political offices and presidents of nations, and at that time with friends with Margaret Thatcher and others and, and our president. And so he's worked with uh, President Bill Clinton during the, uh, uh, reaching the global poor, alleviating the, the, the global poor, and they did that here, I think, somewhere on the East Coast a few years ago. And uh, so he is very well known. All the, goes in and out of all these kinds of positions. So he's telling me all this stuff. And I'm thinking, why are you trying to impress me? I, I'm nobody. And then he finally says, the reason I'm telling you this is not to try to impress you. He goes, but as you were speaking, something was stirring inside of me. And I felt like I, that was the Lord saying, as I'm a, a new Christian, you're supposed to disciple me. I said, sir, I, I can't disciple you from Houston, Texas. 
but I'll be your friend if you promise not to give me any money. And he says, why would you say that? In my head, I'm going, why did I just say that? <laughs> and I said, because I don't want our relationship to be based on what I can get from you. But you will always be able to trust me to know that I want to share with you, even if you disagree from my heart, I want to share with you things I believe that God wants for you. And our friendship has lasted all these years. And just a couple of years ago, I did the, a, a private wedding with all these dignitaries there for his eldest son. And their, their wedding off a private island cost hundreds of dollars a day to stay there. And heads of state there. And the, you know, the three tenors, when all of them were live, used to go there and best friends, good friends with them. So the relationship has lasted all these years. And even though I asked him not to give me any money, the fact is that the trust factor grew in the... And the word went out, and, and then soon we were able to leverage during the Philippine tsunami and, and during the Indonesian tsunami and all these other places to leverage resources through people like that because they know where they can go when they trust someone to help people. But one time I went back, and he asked me to come speak to all of his managing directors of all his, of his corporations for his conglomeration. I'm sitting in, in this big penthouse of their big high-rise building, their headquarters. He calls in all of his managing directors, and he says, I want you to listen to my dearest brother, Doug. He says, and I want you to know that the highest form of worship is simple obedience to God. And I said, Tom Tree, that's really good. Can I borrow that? He goes, my brother, I read it in your book. I go, I better read my book again. <laughs> but then he goes on to tell a story. He was in church one day. And he was raising his hands and worshiping God, and he heard the voice of the Lord speak to his heart and said, and his name, first name is Francis, he calls him, Francis, why do you worship me? And he's thinking, well, I'm in church, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to worship, I'm, I'm singing, I'm worshiping. And the Lord says, no, why do you really worship me? Do you worship me for the benefits I can give you, or do you worship me just because of who I am and what I've already done? And then he understood because he never knew who his real friends were, even great leaders of, and heads of state, or people, did they want a job? Were they trying to be nice to him to get leverage to meet someone, to have relationship equity through him, to, be, you know, to have credibility by association with him? Did they want to get a business deal? What do they want from him? And he understood what the Lord was saying. Why do you really worship me? Just because of who I am and what I've already done or because you want something from me? I thought, wow, that is so powerful. Why do we worship the Lord? The benefits are the fellowship, and, and we get to be entertained, and we have fun, and we get to meet people, and we get to be around the things of God, learn the things of God, but it doesn't circumvent and cannot exchange for the place of his presence. I guess I'm done. I'm just, I don't know how I got off on that tangent. D.L. Moody said that, that there are no limitations to those who've been in the presence of the Lord. And that's the key, isn't it? And I was alluding to Colossians 1, it says, in Colossians 1, 12, it says, give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to receive the inheritance as children of the light. In other words, that we now, through the Son of His love, because it goes on to say that, that every kingdom, principality, rulership, and dominion is subject to Jesus. So now through Jesus, we have direct access to the presence of the creator of the heavens and the earth. 
that we can come boldly into his presence. It's not like we have to wait for some permission. We don't have to make an appointment. God wants us to be in fellowship with him, wants us to be in his presence. And he says, come on in. The water is fine. From the mercy seat of God, the grace of God, God wants us in that place. I love this verse in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. So since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, how many know that the kingdoms of this world is shaking up pretty bad? But it says, so since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us give thanks, and through this let us offer worship pleasing to God in devotion and awe. You know, I've only been at this about 35 years, and I started when I was about 24 years old. I had a, a... an encounter with the Lord. I was running a chain of fitness centers in Houston. My best friend was killed over a, a cocaine drug deal. I was living with a girl from Australia, never been faithful to a woman in my life. Even when I was living with women, I was cheating on them. But God did something in my life. In my exercise studio in Houston, Texas, I got on my knees. I said, God, I just can't take this anymore. I remember the Lord speaking in my heart. It wasn't audible, but I, it was a very strong sense in my heart. It said, Doug, don't call me Lord anymore unless you're willing to live for me. I had professed to be a Christian. I was out clubbing and partying, doing what I was doing, and thinking, well, hey, I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm just human. But at that moment came a moment of personal accountability with God. And he said, don't call me Lord anymore unless you're willing to live for me. And that's when I said, but Lord, I'm only human, and I I know I'm saved by grace. And it was at that moment the Lord spoke again and said, even the demons in hell know who I am, what make you any different. And that moment, this, this presence of God and that sense of conviction, I said, Lord, if you can do anything with someone like me who has broken your heart and brought shame to your name, I'll make myself available to you the rest of my life. It was a simple, honest prayer that God then, His grace was able to abound. His great grace began to move upon my life because I couldn't make the changes, but God began to rock my world. But I was hoping that He would do it my way. It didn't come out my way. But I look back now and realize as landmarks along the way that He did it His way, which was the better way than the way I could have ever done it in my life. So me and my girlfriend broke up. She went back home to her family. Um, I began to just see things in a different perspective. Everything I read in Scripture came alive like it never did before. I began to change. All of a sudden, even though I was running a business, I began to have a heart of compassion in ways I hadn't had and began to take in street kids and runaways and prostitutes and gang members into my apartment. And one day I had 17 living in my apartment. And soon a businessman gave me another apartment if I would... Uh, if I would teach an exercise class and a Bible study there. And I'm thinking, I just got became a Christian. I'm going to teach a Bible study. But they thought I could, and I, that's what I did. I just began to get in the Word and share whatever God gave me. So I put six more kids there. Someone else gave me a house in the suburbs of Houston. I didn't know about deed restrictions. I put 12 more kids there until one day one of them had lost their mind on drugs or something, was on the roof and screaming, the aliens are coming, the aliens are coming. And the, the police department and the housing association said, first of all, you can't do this. So I, had to give the, I gave the house away to a youth pastor that was moving to Houston. And that's how it started. I never expected to do it that way. But through that, we've seen testimony. And I, you know, we have heartbreaks too. And, but some of the testimonies, one street kid that I took off the street, um, he had dropped out. Of, he had one semester to, draw, to graduate from university and got so strung out on drugs that he ended up dropping out of school, ended up on the streets. 
I took him in, helped him out, got him into a drug rehab, followed up with him through the program. After he was done with the program today, his children, three boys, and his wife have never seen him on drugs or alcohol. He's a successful millionaire and owns his own business. And all of his boys go to high-level schools and universities around the country. And every time he tells a story, he weeps about someone caring enough to reach out to him. Another person, I, didn't, I totally forgot, and she emails me or, or she Facebooked me a while back, and turns out she's a grandma now, but I helped her out when she was really young, and she lives in Indonesia, India working with AIDS babies in an AIDS orphanage, saying, when I was on the street, she took me off the streets, put me into a home with some girls, and, and you probably thought that I, I broke your heart, and you, I left, and you never heard from me again, but I want you to know the seeds that were planted lasted, and here's what I'm doing today. Another man that was a bankrupt businessman end up losing everything, and he came down to Houston. I put him on a beanbag in my apartment because there was too many people over there. He had to sleep on a beanbag. Today, he's the president of an oil-related company, and he's a millionaire. Now, I'm not saying every story was great. There's been a lot of sad stories, and many, many that I had to do memorial services and funerals for those who didn't want to receive the truth. But at the end of the day, our job is not to necessarily... We're not called to pick the fruit before it's ripe. Our job is to plant the seed, to water the seed, fertilize the soil, and to make sure that that gives God an opportunity to give an increase in the people's lives that we minister to. It's not about us. It's about those that God calls us to. But I I love this thing about A.W. Tozier because he said, and this is an extrapolation from his teaching on removing the veil. He says, at the heart of the Christian message is God himself waiting for his redeemed children to push into conscious awareness of his presence. He goes on to say, the world is perishing for the lack of the knowledge of God, and the church is famishing for the want of his presence. And then he says, self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. It can only be removed in spiritual experience, never by mere instruction. That's where the presence of God invading us can do only what he can do, not just by the knowledge that we receive, but getting into that touching, the tzitzis, the the tassels, the dangling tassels, in the midst of all that's going on, even in Christendom, that we come in and press in and say, God, I need your presence. In that place, God removes the obstacles. He removes the veils. He removes the things around our lives that hinder us from walking in the fullness of the Godhead body, or the fullness of what God's destiny is for our lives. And then he goes on to say, to be specific, self sins are self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love, and a host of others like them. They dwell too deep within us and are too much a part of our natures to come to our attention till the light of God is focused upon them. So I believe that we're at a place where God wants to do a work in and through us, and for that to happen, we need a renewed sense of God's presence and a passion for Him that breaks our heart with a compassion for others. The founder of World Vision used to pray, God, break my heart with the things that break yours. It's easy for us in the fast-paced society and the things that are going on in the information age and all the technology and and all the social media and, and instantaneous information to have perceptions that may not be true. Perception is not always the truth, but it becomes the truth to those who believe it and perceive it. 
We have to be lovers of truth. Those who love God, He is the way, the truth, He's the way out of our world. He's the way out of Egypt. He's the, the truth at Mount Sinai in the midst of our desert times, and He is the life in the promised land. And God always desires to take us to a destiny, to a promised place, to a place of fulfilling something greater than ourselves. God never intended it for us just to live a status quo. The lives we live before we enter the portals of eternity determine the influence and, and, and that we have for generations to come. I had a friend who was the, well, two friends that were on the space shuttle Columbia. Mike Anderson and Rick Husband, who was the commander of the, of the Columbia Space Shuttle. They'd come to some meetings, and revivals broke loose at a church near, in, in, near the Space Center in Houston, and uh, they began to come to the multiple services for three months. I didn't intend. I went for one service. It turned into multiple services, and they came and got so touched by God, I, had, I didn't realize how much they got touched. But when it was time to, to do the launch, they asked me to go to Florida, and they asked me to speak at their VIP uh, reception before the launch. Dignitaries were there. Media was there. Uh, the astronauts were already in quarantine, so they came by video, but the wives were there, and it was just a great thing. And I said, what do you want me to talk about? I was greatly honored. I'd never been to a launch before. And they, I, what do you want me to talk about? They said, we want you to talk and make a clear presentation of the work of the cross. I said, wait a minute. You got the media there. You got your friends. You, got, you want me to do what? So they invited Steve Green to sing Rick Husband's favorite song, the song that goes, God of the Galaxy, which one is that one? Uh, God of Wonders Beyond, yeah, the Galaxy. And so that was actually the song that NASA was to use when he was sleeping in the space shuttle. That was his alarm clock. He would wake up to that song. Can you imagine looking out of the space shuttle going, wow, the God of Wonders. <laughs> so they asked me to talk about the cross. I they wow, okay. And say, so Steve Green sing that song. I share a little bit about the cross. And, and who would have thought? That 16 days later, that tragedy would happen. All of our hearts sunk all across the world. But here's what he wrote down in his papers to his pastor. And these papers are only to be open. It's sealed. Every astronaut has to fill out their last testament, so to speak, just in case something goes wrong. Now, they didn't expect it to go wrong, but it did. It's only open in the event that something goes wrong. The final words he wrote in his own writing knowing that his pastor would see these words only in the event of a tragedy and knowing the world would show up at the church and people, the media would show up at the church and everybody would ask him the question, what the heck? And here's his words. Pastor Steve, just tell him about Jesus and that he was real to me. And before he went into space, he used to have a 15-minute devotion with his children every day, his, his daughter and son. He didn't want to miss his 15 minutes personally with his son and daughter every day, so he did 15, I mean 16, 15-minute devos on DVD for them. So every day he was gone, day 5, day 10, day 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, every day they'd wake up, put that video in, and have devotion with dad for the day while he was in space. On the 16th day, they were so excited to go see Dad, and yet they opened up, they put that video in, they did their last Devo, they went there, and they saw the tragedy. But you see, the life he lived before he entered the portals of eternity have now influenced not just his children, but generations to come. 
I was sharing that story at a Oakland Raiders Dallas Cowboys game. They asked me to fly up to Dallas to do a Devo for um, for the Oakland Raiders, and I said only if um, if you don't make me pray that the Oakland Raiders will be beat the Cowboys. I mean, I'm a Texan, right? I'm in Texas, and. Uh, I, had, I was scheduled to take the last flight out that day because they came in on an evening flight. I was doing the Devos for them, and then uh, I was going to fill out the last flight out because I had things to do back in Houston the next morning. But God so showed up that night. These grown men, when I told the story about Rick Husband and Mike Anderson and the lives they live, I said, there's life beyond the NFL. You, can pl- you should play the best you can play, be the greatest athlete you can be, but remember there's more than, the, than life on the football field. Are you living a life of character? And if you're professing to be a Christian, are you being Christ-like every day of your life with your wife, your children? Are you a role model to those who are watching you? And are you sowing to your future beyond your career? There's life beyond the NFL. And these grown men, I thought they were going to strangle me. Instead, they were hugging me and crying and, and uh, weeping. It was a great night. So I missed my last flight out from Dallas. I had to spend the night there at the hotel. Flew back to Houston the next morning. Well, I talked to the chaplain of the, of the Oakland Raiders and said, how would it go? He goes, man, it's been a couple weeks, and it's like, it's like we're still at a good Texas barbecue. We can still sense what God did that night. Most people want to come in and give them a you know, pat on the back. Oh, you guys are awesome. You guys are great. But you went face-to-face with them and just said, deal with the real issues of your heart. You need a revival of character. He goes, but I can never invite you back again. I said, why is that? He goes, because we lost 50-something to like, you know, 10 or whatever against the Cowboys, and, and our guys weren't ready to play. I go, oh, man. See, there's life beyond our moments of difficulties. There's life beyond what we're going through. Every adversity is an opportunity for God to show himself greater. For those that were with us Friday night, I shared with you that last year I was actually here in Haverhill, and uh, noticed some lumps on my, um, I had noticed some lumps while I was working out the gym in Houston, but it was up here in Haverhill for some meetings for Somebody Cares New England and, and uh, Marlene Yo, and uh, noticed some lumps on my neck. And so I called some doctors, emailed some doctor friends, and said, you need to get that biopsied. Well, then by the first week of April, we found out it was an aggressive B-cell lymphoma. Didn't know how bad. It turned out to be 80% aggressive. By the time they could get to it at MD Anderson, it was stage four. It was over my whole body. And I remember telling my wife, after two hours of crying in the parking lot of a grocery store, I went back to sit down with my wife, my daughter, and my mother-in-law, who lives with us, who's from Monterey, Mexico. And we're all crying. We took communion, and I sat down and said, first of all, I want you to understand, God did not do this to me. And if God did not do this to me, it doesn't belong to me. And if it doesn't belong to me, we cannot let this be about me. We're going to live this out in a very public way and turn the glory to God. And if it's not about me, if it didn't, God didn't do this, it doesn't belong to me, and it's not about me, let this turn into an opportunity of intercession and ministry for the Church of America and for those that have needs. And out of the woodwork all over the world, thousands of people began to, to respond, and people are sending us messages and asking for prayer. There was another ministry that got birthed out of a, a lady who had made what she calls pillows of peace for her daughters when they were growing up with scriptures all over them. So they decided they were going to get me a pillow of peace and brought it to the house and had all these healing scriptures on it. I thought, what a great idea. And soon we started getting other people to make them, and homeschool uh, groups and youth groups began to make t- pillows of peace. And now they're all over the country. I flew up to New Hampshire with my wife to give a pillow of peace 
to someone who was going through cancer there. And people we didn't even know started hearing about the pillows of peace. It just gave them a sense of hope that their hope is not in, although we trust in medical professionals, we did everything I could naturally. I drank all the juicing and I did all the, you know, you can name everything. My wife, the baking soda my wife made me drink. And high alkaline stuff. Every, you talk about it, you know, everything. And then, uh, but I also went and did what I was supposed to do at the medical center. I did my chemo. I did everything they said. But nobody was allowed to touch me without first letting me pray. If it was a person taking blood or putting chemo in me, I had to pray and pray for them because I wanted to minister to them. We took communion every day as a family. And then, but we had the God factor. And notice that we had the body of Christ to lean on. And sometimes our greatest difficulties, you find out who really cares. And the fact is we can't be lone rangers. We need each other. That's what the body of Christ, that's what your church fellowship is about. You need each other, and sometimes you don't appreciate it until you go through your difficult times. And I began to see hundreds and hundreds of other people that were all alone at the medical center, coming from around the world, from every background and religion, sitting there all by themselves. I can only imagine what they're processing. And we were able to minister to many of them by praying for them, befriending them, getting my wife getting a bag of somebody says, I just want some potato chips. My wife goes off and buys potato chips, brings them back to people just sitting there because it couldn't be about us. And most people had no clue that I even had cancer because I determined I was going to still travel, still minister because I couldn't stop doing what God called me to do. I wasn't going to let the devil distract me from what God's calling was in my life. And as long as I could travel, as long as I could minister, as long as I could do what God called me, I was going to do it. I never canceled any trips except for internationally because the doctors wouldn't let me go internationally. But all across America, all last year, and by November 10th, the doctors couldn't believe it. They couldn't find any evidence of disease left in my body. <laughs> Every adversity is an opportunity for God to show himself greater. Lisa and I, my wife, Lisa, if you'll stand, if you're still here somewhere, there's my, my wife, Lisa. Stand so we can see you, honey. Um, we were in Israel and visiting some friends as well and doing some other things, and uh, I wanted to go to a place called the Tabernacle of Shiloh. And the Tabernacle of Shiloh in 1 Samuel is where, um, in chapter 1, where Hannah, in her human impossibility... And I want you to just think about this for a moment. How many of you have had some difficult times? How many of you are going through some things you need a breakthrough right now in your life? Hannah, in her human impossibility, she was miserable. She was hurt. She was confused. She was sad. She goes and does all, but she knows she's only got left to do, and that's go into the tabernacle of God at Shiloh and ask God, beg God, God, would you do this? Would you do the humanly impossible for me? She came in there crying and sad, and Eli noticed that she had been speaking. He goes, are you a drunk woman? And she says, no, but she began to share her heart that she was beyond her years to have a child, and, and she was asking God, please, God, would you do this miracle for me? And if you do this miracle, I will dedicate my child to you all the days of his life. And how that equates to all of us is what is it that we're asking of God? What is humanly impossible for us? And God can inter still intervene. If God can do it, then he can do it now. And out of human impossibility, God heard her heart cry in his presence. 
And she came into that place sad, left there with a new expectation, not in self but in him, got a word in season from God, and from that place she ended up birthing a new generation of prophet and righteous judge named Samuel. In chapter 3, Samuel was in the tabernacle, and Eli and, 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 and hears uh, and, and with Eli, and all of a sudden he hears a voice. Little, little Samuel hears a voice, and the voice is God saying, "Samuel, Samuel." And at first he thought it was Eli calling. Yeah, 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 yes, sir, yes, Lord. And he goes, "I didn't call you." He goes back. It's the Lord, Samuel, Samuel. And I believe God is calling forth a Samuel generation right now of young Samuels, but also calling for older Samuels. Because the younger, to hear the voice of God with such an innocence and a purity before God to say, God, whatever you want, let's do it. And the older Samuels, in the midst of all kinds of difficulties, and the world is looking for a Saul, Samuel is finding a David tending to his father's business. So we need some younger Samuel. The older Samuel is going to say, there's something about you. And be able to say, there's something in you that you may not see about yourself. And everybody else is looking elsewhere, but there's something inside of you. You're the one tending to the presence of God, to your Father. And God is saying, inside of you, I want to bring forth destiny. There is a king or a queen inside of you that I want to bring into your destiny. Others may not know, but God sees. God is not looking for those who seem like they have it together. He's looking for those who have given their hearts completely to Him. He's looking at each and every one of us and saying, Look, I see in you something greater than maybe others have ever saw in you. When you surrender to the totality and the fullness of the, of the Lord Himself, God can do what only God can do. So it's in that context. So I heard that the tabernacle of Shiloh, they found it. They were doing archaeological dig, and I said to my wife, we've got to go there. So we went over to the archaeological dig of, of the tabernacle of Shiloh while we were in Israel. And we went down there walking around the rocks and seeing this, this beautiful scenery. And we walked down, and we see where they've been digging out things. And we found the flag of where the tabernacle would have been and exactly the spot in the outer court and the congregational court in the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant would have rested and exactly around the place that Hannah would have literally been on her knees crying out to God. So we got down into that dig in that dirt and we got down in there and I said, Jesus, if you can do this those many hundreds and thousands of years ago, you are still the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I know you can still do it for others today. So God, out of this generation's desperation... God, would you do what only you can do? And I want you to think about that for a minute. Because out of your human challenges, out of your adversity, remember every adversity, even every adversary, is not you outlive every one of them when Christ is with you. Every adversity is an opportunity for God to show himself greater, individually and corporately, when we cross our racial, denominational lines and generational lines to meet the cross of Christ. We are the church. When you look at, Ma at Micah chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 2, they start out word by word, in verbatim, the same exact words. And it starts out in Micah 4 that in the latter days, all peoples would gather at the mountain of the Lord. And the inference is all ethnos, all ethnicities, all nationalities, all people will be welcome at the mountain of the Lord. That's the church. And the church should have all people's welcome to come. And it says the outcast, the lame, and the sick became a strong nation. 
That's a revival by choice. Revival is here and coming. It will come by choice or by circumstance and consequence. But it's coming. God wants His church to set the tone and and set the, the tone for His presence and for authentic outpouring of His Spirit because it's the right thing to do by choice, not by consequence. It's an intentionality. But here's what was so cool about Micah chapter 4. All people gathered them up, and then it says, here's the inference. They would exchange their weapons of warfare against each other to pick up harvesting tools together. Let me share it, share it this way. I have a pastor friend who was a Baptist pastor who now has a house of prayer, New Haven House of Prayer. And uh, they said that uh, this is in Houston, not New Haven, but it's in Houston. And... Uh, and he had, when he was growing up, his dad had 500, uh, uh, had all these healer dogs, blue healer dogs. And blue healer dogs, they live to do one thing. They sleep, eat, breathe, just to do roundup for cattle and sheep. They love to do that. And, but they had a friend, a neighbor had 500 head of cattle, but didn't have enough dogs. So all the neighbors decided, let's be neighborly, and let's get all of our dogs together and help out our neighbor. So that morning, they all have their hot coffee. They get together, they fellowship. And when it's time to open the cages for the blue healer dogs to go do what they live, breathe, and eat to do. They open those cages, and normally those dogs run straight to the cattle, do their barking and nipping, and get the cattle into the cage, into the pen. But this time, the dogs did not go after the cattle. And no matter how much their owners said, Go blue! Go blue! They wouldn't even listen to the voice of their masters until they went to the other dogs that they didn't know. Sniffing, growling, checking each other out, hair up on their heads, on their, in their backs of their necks. And no matter how much their owners said, go blue, go blue, go blue, they even ignored the voice of their owners till they were done sniffing, checking, and growling each other. And then they went and did what they loved to do, round up the cattle. And the moral of that story is we have to get past our sniffing, growling, and checking. We have a common place in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's already gone to the cross for us. There's a lot of things we have to be intentional in relationship equities to work through our issues. There's some real issues that we have to work through in this country, but the hope is still in the church. When Jesus is on the, on the throne of the hearts of our, his individuals, of his Christians, and of his church, we then can become that entity that becomes a plumb line, not just of righteousness and justice, but forgiveness, healing, and hope. We are the answer for a generation. Amen? So if Jesus, if God can do that for Hannah, God can do that for you and for me. In 2 Chronicles, in 2 Corinthians 2.14, and I'll close here in a moment. It, how much time? Do I have five minutes? Am I good? Okay. Look at somebody next to you and say, he's good. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, and I love it, so I'll give you the Doug Stringer paraphrase because this fits with what I'm about to do, and we're going to believe God to do something in you and through you that only he can do. And within the next... 48 to 72 hours that God will do something so significant in your life that you know you just had a wink from heaven. But in 2 Corinthians 2.14, it says, giving, give God thanks always. We're giving our Father thanks always because He always leads us to triumph or victory in Christ Jesus so that we can become a manifester, a dispenser of the manifest wisdom or fragrance of heaven. 
So what does that mean? That no matter what we go through, God's promises, He will always lead us to something better. He will always lead us where the devil meant for harm, God will make for good. God will always lead us somewhere better so that we can be that fragrance, that dispenser of the presence of God. Everywhere we go, it says, everywhere you go. That means beyond our words, when you've been in the presence of the creator of the heavens of the heavens, and you're in his presence, no matter where you go, before you even speak, there's something about you. I've had new agers come to me and they said, they said, there's something about you. Are you like metaphysical? I'm going, well, I'm not sure what that means, but hey, I got Jesus. You have people, they're not, they don't even know why they're drawn to you. And even those who want to argue with you aren't even sure why they want to argue with you. And then when you just diffuse it by turning around with the, uh, not responding in like kind, but responding with the right spirit, it changes them. I had a disc jockey who was the head of a, of a gay political group in, in Houston. And for some reason, his perception, he hated me because I was on the streets until 2 or 3, 4 o'clock in the morning ministering to drug addicts, prostitutes, transvestites. I was p- ministering to people. And his perception of Christians must have been askew because he was always harassing me. And I was on a Christian radio program, a live two-hour program. He calls in, changed his name, and starts harassing me and calling me all kinds of names and calling Christians a bunch of this and that. And so I said, is this so-and-so? He changed his name on the call, but I could tell his voice. Actually, I could tell his attitude, who he was. And I said, is this so-and-so? Yes. I go, well, why do you attack us like that? And he began to slam us again, call us all kinds of names. I said, well, where are your friends when you really need them? And he says, what are you talking about? My my community, we, we stick together. We cut for one another. I said, really? He said, last month when you couldn't pay your rent and your light bill, where were your friends? He goes, how did you know about that? He goes, it doesn't matter how I found out. But it was me and my team that took up an offering between us, and we anonymously paid your rent and your light bill. Silence. The night before he died of AIDS, another young man in a dream, God spoke to him. He had AIDS. In a dream, in desperation, in a dream, he went to sleep afraid. In a dream, God showed him. That when he was to wake up, he was to go by a nearby church, and they would share how to find the place of freedom. Also in the dream, in the dream, he said he saw an Asian guy who took him across a river called Jordan. And he didn't know what that meant, so he went to a church in Alvin, Texas, of all places. He went in there, and they they led him to Christ, began to minister to him. And before he leaves, he goes, by the way, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I feel like I'm supposed to give you this book by a guy named Doug Stringer. They give him the book, and the book at that time was called, It's Time to Cross the Jordan. He goes, wow, that was in my dream. And when he turned the book over, there was an original version back in 1990, original version, and it was a black and white picture with me with a mustache and long hair, right? He goes, that's the Asian guy in my dream. Now, how many know that God hears the cries of people, and He will find a way? Jesus, if you are who you say you are, reveal yourself to me. It wasn't about me. It was about His heart cry and God confirming to Him that God was for real. I was in Fiji in the island of Lombasa in 1992 or 93. 
A guy picks me up at the airport, a passenger plane. I'm getting ready to speak to about 3,000 uh, people coming from uh, Bible college students and people from the Vanuatu and Solomon Islands and Fiji. They all got there sleeping on the river there uh, in, in Lombasa. And I get there, and the guy picks me and goes, hello, they call me Moses. I go, well, nice to meet you, Moses. He goes, can I ask you a question? I said, yes. Are you the person who wrote a book about the Jordan River? And they go, are you kidding me? So he says, I was in a dream, and the Lord told me to read about how to cross the Jordan River and possess the land of promise. So I went to the local bookshop, and the bookshop in La Bossa is like a little closet. And, he's looking, and he says, do you have any books about the... They go, we don't think so. And before he walks out, he sees, jumps out, he sees in the books a book called It's Time to Cross the Jordan. He pulls it out, and he turns it over. He goes, that's the man in my dreams. It wasn't about me. It was about him. I was in Zambia, Africa, crossing the river to Zimbabwe. Beautiful Victoria Falls, but two different countries. You have to get out. You get the, the baboons, everybody trying to get in your car. You have to keep the, roll, the, the windows rolled up. You get out. You take your passport. You go over to the, the customs person, whatever you call them, the uh, border agent. And the border agent looks at my passport in Zimbabwe. He looks at me. He looks down in a drawer. He looks up at me. He goes, did you write a book about the Jordan River? I'm thinking, God, what are you saying? It was probably the worst book I ever wrote. So it wasn't about the book. I think it was about God just trying to show himself that he's for real. He goes, I was praying that I would someday meet the author, and he pulls the book out of his drawer that I would have this man pray for me. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? See, that's the God. See, no matter where, if you're in the jungle of, 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 of uh, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, if you're in the jungle of Fiji, if you're in Vanuatu Island, no matter where you are in the world, God is hearing the cries of authentic cries of people. His desire, though, is to use you and me. But to use us, we have to get rid of some of dead baggage and say, God, would you do a work in me so you can do a work through me? So looking back at Hannah's cry, she says, when Eli looks at her and she tells the story in her human impossibility, and Eli says to her, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have petitioned of him this day. And I've done the same thing all over the world. And I've seen God do something so significant because God is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I simply do it this way because I'm, I'm not Eli. I'm not a prophet. I'm speaking prophetically. That if God can do it then, God can do it for you now. And God could use us together to reach this nation and reach this generation. That out of your human impossibility and your human situation, your adversity, God wants to turn things around to show you that he's got destiny yet to do through you. In her human impossibility, God brought forth a new generation of prophet named Samuel a new righteous, we need a new judicial system of righteousness. Not those who rule over us, but who would submit themselves to the King of kings and Lord of lords. We need a new righteous prophetic voices in the land, and many of them are sitting right here today, many of you and others joined together. And so what I say to people is that begin to ponder what your need is from God. And ask the question, Jesus, if you really are who you say you are, reveal yourself to me. But do it with, not with a heart of attitude, but a heart of saying, God, I want to know. 
and I trust you to do something. And what I do is I do it three times because we serve a triune holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. Holy is the Spirit of God. A threefold cord cannot be broken. God is never in disagreement with his own character, nature, word, and spirit. God is in agreement with himself. So I do it three times. I say, go in peace. And may the Lord Jesus Christ grant you the desires of your heart today. And then I say it again, thus saith the Lord, go in peace. And may the Lord Jesus Christ grant you the desires you have asked of him this day. And again, the third time, and again I say to you, go in peace. And may the Lord Jesus Christ grant you the desires of your heart today. And I want something from sadness to turn into a new expectation of gladness. Because you may, she came into the tabernacle, she left the same, but the difference was she had a new expectation. She had a word from God in season through the man of God. Receive a word in season for you today. And some of you carry a burden for our nation. You carry a burden for your families. You carry a burden for what's going on in the world. Receive that word. It's not just about us individually, but it's about bigger than us. The prophetic drama of the day is that the very things we go through become a greater message to our generation. And that's what God wants to do in us today. But before we go to that place for me to pray, because I've seen literally miracles happen in people's lives. I, I'm, walk, I'm walking miracles. I see miracles in other people's lives, in, in Fiji and Botswana and Nigeria. Wherever I've gone, I've seen God do things because God is still a God that cares, and He's still a God that does miracles. Amen? Amen. Well, can, can I tell you that the guy that was harassing me, we paid for his light bill and his rent the night before he died of full-blown AIDS. The other person had the dream, had become part of our ministry. And so I asked him because I was out of town, can you go visit so-and-so in the hospital he went to visit him, and he couldn't stop saying, why did you guys do that? Why did you pay my rent and light bill? And he began to minister to him and led him to Christ. The next day, he passed away. I was sharing that story at a large Assembly of God church in another part of Texas. I never said the person's name. A woman comes up to me with tears saying, please, is his name so-and-so? I said, yes, it was. She goes, that was my son. I had been praying for my son. God hears the prayers of his people. God still hears our prayers. He's moving in ways that we don't even comprehend. Today, we're going to leave with a renewed expectation in the Lord, not in our own expectations. And God wants to do something in and through each and every one of you to reach your generation. Our only hope in America is not in a political party, a man or a woman, but it's in the Lord Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. But the church has to get right posture before we have a public influence. And the posture is not against each other, but it's together putting, putting aside our weapons of warfare against each other and taking up harvesting tools together. It's harvest time. Amen? Now listen to me. Before I can pray that blessing, though, I'm going to ask you a question like I did in Indonesia, like I do in Vietnam, like I do in Botswana, like I do wherever I go, is there are five sins in 1 Corinthians 10 that kept Israel out of the promised land for 40 years. It's the same five sins that keep us from the fullness of the destiny God intends for us. Lust. What is lust? Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Pride is so repelling to God, but humility is attractive. Lust. Secondly, is idolatry. What is idolatry? Anything that masters or possesses our affections more than Jesus. Third, sexual immorality. We don't really need a dictionary to figure that out. What does that mean? 
what we allow in the shar'ar of our spirit comes through our mind and our ear gate and our eye gate. The place it gets into our spirit that controls us. It's not a, as a man thinketh, so is he. It's as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. You will get temptations, you'll get thoughts, but it's not what you do at the thought level, it's what you allow the thoughts to get into the shar'ar of the very spirit of your life that controls you. Giving place to pornography, giving place to things you know. We have to tell you what the lists are. You know, but the Spirit of God in you already tells you if you're trying to justify by excuse rather than being justified by faith. There are times the Holy Spirit's already nudging, and we just try to ignore you. Oh, I can't be God. That's the devil. When it's really the Holy Spirit trying to bring us to a new level of consecration. We have a thing. We never criticize and judge others. I have a thing in our home. My daughter's 14, and my wife and I, we always talk about others may, we may not. I don't judge what other people do, but I feel like God's called me to a different level of consecration by His grace. And if we're going to have a Nazarite generation, a prophetic generation that God's calling this to be, there's something we just got to say, you know what, I don't need that. Let me go to a deeper level of consecration. Without being critical or judgmental, we just got to say, it's about me, so I want to make sure I go deeper in consecration to go higher in expectation in the Lord. So lust, idolatry, sexual immorality adultery, fornication, but even, even that, if it's not just what we do acted out, that's the byproduct, but actually is what we've already allowed in our spirit that gives place to those things. So we have to get those rooted out. The fourth is tempting Christ. What is tempting Christ? I was speaking at Houston Baptist University, and they had to, all the students have to go to chapel. So you have hundreds and hundreds of kids there. Many of them aren't even Christians that go there. They go for a good education. And so I wanted to get the attention of the unsaved, so-called unsaved, unchurched people. And they were all doing their homework and notes. They weren't paying attention to the speaker. And I said, I apologize for all of you here that are not Christians. I'm going to take care of some dirty laundry today. And they all put their notes on. We want to hear what's going on. What am I going to say to the Christians? And I said to the Christians, here's what tempting Christ is. To say you're a Christian, go to church on Sunday and act like a Christian in front of your family but you come here all week and you act like the world and you wonder why your friends don't want to be like you and why your unsaved friends don't want anything to do with church because all they see about church is you. Tempting Christ is a claim to be a Christian, but you live like the devil. And the fifth one we don't like, but it's, a, it's like an immune deficiency disease. It's a cancer cell that spreads. It's called murmuring, backbiting, gossip. I've seen more great movements and churches hindered because God was doing something and somebody gets upset and they take an offense. They begin to be seditious, undermining God's constitutive authority. They begin to murmur and backbite and begin to battle one another instead of saying, you know what, I don't care if they wear that kind of cologne or privilege. You know what, I don't do it, but hey, let it go. If it's not about eternally, eternal perspectives, it's not about the things that are essential, let it go. Keep a right spirit. People have used me, abused me, done things, plagiarized me. And my wife and I have talked about it. And, they, and one time my wife says, Doug, do you know these people are using you? They're, they're plagiarizing you. And they're taking all the credit. I go, well, honey, if I know I'm being used, then I'm not really being used. If people do it to me and I allow it, then I'm not being weak. I just am letting it go because God's my vindicator. And God will make a way where I can't even make a way for myself. If I keep my spirit right, if my heart gets offended and my heart gets wounded, I'm limited. So why should I limit myself when other people don't care? I'm, I want to make sure my heart is right and let God deal with these others that maybe I feel offended by. Taking the high road, take the high road, take the high road.
But murmuring and backbiting is that spiritually immune deficiency disease that uh, cells of the body destroying other cells of the body. So I'm going to ask in a moment, I'm going to count to three, just like you do it anywhere in the world. 5,000 pastors in Bogota, Colombia, to 30,000 people in Crusade in Indonesia, or in a garbage dumps of, of Surabaya, Indonesia, I say, I do the same. I never allow people to bow their heads. Because if I allow you to bow your heads and play music and have you raise your hands, you can leave here the same as when you've come. But if we look eyeball to eyeball, face to face, and today it doesn't cost us our life in the sense of some of my friends who've been imprisoned, assassinated for their faith. Underground churches in Iran where they suffer imprisonment and, and murder because of their faith. But today it costs us our pride. And I pray it's all it costs us because revival comes by choice or by circumstance and consequence. So on the count of three, I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to ask you to do this. On the count of three, if there's lust, idolatry, sexual sins, murmuring, backbiting, tempting Christ in your life, or things you know that the Holy Spirit is saying is not right, and you want to get it out, you can't do it on your own. It, has to, it can't be because I'm forcing you. It has to be because something inside says, God, I need you to do this because I want to walk in the fullness of what you have for me. And by His grace, His abounding grace, He's able to do what only He can do, you cannot do. But we have to be honest and willing. I used to be in the fitness business, no pain, no gain. I said, Lord, make it hurt so good. So in a moment, I'm going to count to three. And if there's things in your life you know that are not pleasing to the Lord, the good thing is it doesn't have to be exposed. You know God knows. And if we are honest with God, we don't have to be publicly humiliated. But when we hide it from God, eventually it gets exposed and we become humiliated. Isn't it better for us just to, by choice, come to God and say, God, here it is. Get rid of it. Do what you need to do. So on the count of three, if there's things in your life you know that are not pleasing to the Lord, stand with me. One, two, three. Thank you for your honesty. Would you put your hand on your heart with me and pray with me? And pray like you mean. Say, Lord Jesus. Come on, like you mean. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins and the things I've done that have broken your heart and brought shame to your name. Right now by faith, I give you the right to change my mind, change my heart, change my life. And right now by faith, do whatever you need to do to help me to become what you want me to become and to walk in the fullness of my destiny. I'm yours, Jesus, and I worship you just because, because, because of who you are. And what you've already done for me. I surrender, Lord. I surrender, Lord. And now by faith, I receive into my spirit forgiveness of sins, a renewing of my life, a fulfillment of my destiny, and a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Now listen to me. Sit down for one second. Listen to me. Whatever your impossible situation is, this is what God wants to do in your life. Thus saith the Lord, go in peace. And may the Lord Jesus Christ grant you the desires of your heart today. And again I say to you, thus saith the Lord, go in peace.
And may the Lord Jesus Christ grant you the desires of your heart today. And again I say to you, thus saith the Lord, go in peace. And may the Lord Jesus Christ grant you the desires of your heart today. Now listen to me. When Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist, a voice of God came from heaven. It says the Holy Spirit came down like a dove. And this is what the Father said from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's God saying for everyone to know, that's my boy. Colossians 1.12, Romans 8.15, all kinds of Scripture remind us that because of the Son of His love, Jesus, now God sees us through His paradigm. And He looks at you and says, that's my girl. That's my girl. That's my boy. That's my boy. That's my girl. Put yourself in that position because God is looking at you and giving you the affirmation, approval, and acceptance that you desperately long for. A book I just finished is out now. You can get it online, and I've got a bunch of bookmarks. I'll give it to you if you want a bookmark. Just remember to pray for us. It's called In Search of a Father's Blessing, The Cry of a Lost Generation. But I believe it's a prophetic generation God wants to put his hands on. And so the bookmarks are back to the table. You have a free copy. On the other side is a book coming out in a few weeks called Leadership Awakening. And I believe right in this very room, there's a generation of leaders that God is raising up. From preachers to politicians, we need a revival of character. From political offices to pulpits of America, we need a revival in America. We need people who love God and people more than they love themselves. And God is raising up this. The hope for the future is this generation. And I believe that God is calling you to that place. Amen. Come on, yeah, wasn't that good? All right, listen, I know we're going later than what we 